Welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Science Fiction, the podcast for those who enjoy books and conversations about science fiction and worlds that aren't here yet, but could be or maybe are, but in an alternate universe. This is the Water Off a Heron's Back edition. My guest today is Robbie Arnett, who's here to talk about The Rain Heron, a novel that looks at our relationship with the environment and each other through the intertwined relationships of a small cast of characters in an unnamed country beset by a military coup and climate disruptions. The titular creature is as wondrous as any you might find in a myth, ancient or modern, and gives the book the air of a fable, although any specific genre classification doesn't do justice to a book as complex and interesting as The Rain Heron. Robbie Arnott is joining me now from his family's beach house on the north coast of Tasmania. Robbie, thank you so much for coming on the pod. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm trying to picture what a beach house on the north coast of Tasmania looks like. What are the beaches like in Tasmania? We've got quite a few, but compared to most Australian, uh, I guess, stereotypes, they're quite cold. It's a lot colder down here. At the moment, I'm looking out at a, a long yellow beach with a very green hinterland behind it, just on the mouth of a big saltwater river that comes out of the north coast here. But on the east coast of Tasmania, we have these kind of crystal white squeaky beaches that are very popular with tourists. But I'm in a more normal area just with a yellow one. Yellow Beach. Well, I grew up on Lake Michigan, which has kind of yellow, sandy beaches, and the water is very cold there as well. So I, I respect beaches with cold water. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it gets yeah, it gets freezing here. But um, the further south you go in Tasmania, the colder it gets and the wetsuits get thicker and thicker. So at the moment, it's not too bad. Well, now we're going to go from what sounds like a completely beautiful setting to talk about the coup in the rain here, which is this thing that seems to alternate between being abstract, something that happened in a distant part of the country that doesn't seem to affect day-to-day life, and this thing that is very real and dangerous and harmful to both man and nature. And one of your key characters, Ren, to me embodied that dichotomy where the coup tore her family apart, separated her from her son, so she goes off to the mountains to live essentially like a hermit, where she for many years, basically forgets the coup or ignores it anyway, but then these soldiers find her. I wondered if you could tell our listeners about Ren, you know, why she's gone to the mountains, what she's doing there, and then what these soldiers want from her. Yeah, I think you've um, summed that up really well. So the world of this novel is set in an unnamed country a couple of years, not too specified, after a military coup has taken over the the government and essentially ravaged the life of everyone within the country. And so the protagonist at the beginning of the novel, Wren, has fled to this mountainside, a place she used to go with her grandmother when she was a child, and she's seeking to return to this more idyllic, simple way of life due to the things that happened to her during the coup, such as being separated from her son and undergoing periods of violence. And so what she's seeking to do is get away from everything and just to escape, not to function in a modern society anymore. And she does achieve that for a while until 
a group of soldiers come to the mountain some years after the coup in search of a mythical creature, the rain heron. And it's unclear whether or not this mythical creature actually exists or not. But these soldiers are under the impression that if it's going to be anywhere, it's going to be on the side of this mountain. And if anyone knows how to find it, it will be this woman who's been living there as a hermit. And that's where the, the main tension in the plot kicks off is as these soldiers try to coerce Ren into helping them find this mythical creature as she tries to convince them that it doesn't even exist. Well, you don't have to read that far into the book to find out that this mythical creature is real. So could you describe the rain heron and what inspirations you drew on to invent this creature? Yeah, so the rain heron is a, is a mythical creature, somewhat larger than an ordinary heron, but similar in shape, but not in form because it's entirely made of water. And it's able to transpose its body into any form of water, really. It, be, it can become icy, it become misty, it become vapour, it, be, it can become steam or hail or rain. And it can do this at will. And along with that, it's able to affect the climate around it. So it's able to create rainstorms and floods and, and affect all the other moisture in the air. And that's how I conceived of it and how I kind of turned it onto the page. And, and what I was really trying to do was create a mythical creature that embodies both the beauty and the savagery of nature. I wanted something that is totally captivating the way many natural environments and phenomena can be, but also is really, really dangerous. And the reason I ended up choosing the heron to have this water-based form is because I realized I was thinking essentially about a storm and the way that a storm is so captivating and you can't look away from it, particularly when there's black clouds rolling in and you see the lightning forking down. But also, you know instinctively that it's incredibly dangerous and you need to get away from it. And yet we're still staring at it. And once I realized that was essentially a good almost totem of what I was thinking about, I, I just essentially tried to turn a storm into a bird. And that was where the myth took off. And then I inserted it into the story I was telling. But that, that's really where it came from. Um, the beauty and savagery of nature turned into an animal. As you were speaking, I also thought how we experience climate change so often through storms, bigger hurricanes, floods, rising waters. I hadn't thought of it necessarily before, but as you were describing and explaining so eloquently how it can take on all these different water forms, I thought it's also kind of a spokesperson for how climate change manifests. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's really present in the book, I think. I tried not to make it this really obvious main theme running through it because that wasn't the sort of book I wanted to write, but it was also very present in, in, in my thinking and in my descriptions. Um, I don't think you can write about the natural world these days without being conscious of what's happening to our own one. And, yeah, I think that's, that's a really good point. We're so used to thinking of climate change as, as a heating, almost as global warming and things getting hotter and drying out, and yet the real reality of it is that it's just chaos and any form of environmental destruction. So storms and floods are as much a part of that as fires and droughts. So, yeah, I think that's a really good point. There's another creature that has a mythical feel to it, the giant squid. I want to say giant. I don't know if it's actually a giant squid, but it's a squid, and it seems pretty big. Can you talk about that and how another of your characters, Zoe and her aunt and their whole community, have a symbiotic relationship with the squid? I mean, I say symbiotic. I guess it's a mutually successful relationship, and it seems to be one form of relationship that humans can have with nature that you present in the book? 
Yeah, so in, in one section of the book, there's this uh, community of people, a village living in a very cold southern coast of the country. And the way they survive is by um, harvesting squid ink from these large squid. And the process of doing that is by actually summoning and luring the squid up from the deep with their own blood. And the squid then eat the blood or drink the blood and feast on it. And that renders them quite sluggish and dazed. And then they're able to essentially milk the uh, ink out of it. And that's how they get this wondrous ink that they can then sell for quite high, high cost. So part of it was I wanted to show this relationship between a community of people and an aspect of nature that wasn't destructive and was actually mutually beneficial, as you said. Um, that, that's something you can get sneered at a lot these days if you bring it up. They almost sound like some sort of dreadlocked hippie talking about living wondrously in hand in hand with nature. But I, I think in truth, many human communities for thousands and thousands of years did live in a mutually beneficial relationship with nature. They didn't wreck the joint. They didn't burn and destroy and strip mine everything. Communities lived for a very long time in a way where they were giving as much back to the land as they were getting out of it. So I wanted to explore this in a, in a really imaginative way because I thought it would be interesting and I thought it would be a lot of fun, but also it still rings true. And that's what I wanted to do. And I guess the only other aspect of that is I just really like the idea of people trying to milk a giant squid because <laughs> I go fishing quite a lot and I catch squid. And the most fun th fun I have is um, when I finally get a squid in on a net, it's on a hook, and then my brother is leaning over the net to bring it in. If you jerk the squid up at the right moment, it sprays ink all over the person trying to net it, mm. completely ruins their clothes. And I've just been having fun doing that my whole life, and I wondered if I could turn that into something a bit more powerful and evocative in fiction rather than just ruining my brother's shirt. I feel like you're trying to answer a question that I, I have never been able to understand, and it, it is basically that it seems so obvious to me and to certain people and to the people who you were referring to who for thousands of years lived more or less in harmony with nature and the nature sustained them. You know, it seems obvious to me that the environment works because it's this well-calibrated, complex, interconnected network with a gazillion variables that have evolved over billions of years and that when we destroy species and pump carbon into the air and pollutants and poisons and we develop land everywhere, we're just screwing it all up and no one will benefit. I mean, there's just temporary benefits and it, it's obvious to some people. And I would, I would say there's a character, Lieutenant Harker, who starts out her life living symbiotically with nature. And in the middle of the book, she is basically exploiting it. And she she is the, leading the group of uh, the people from the uh, military who are there to get the rain heron at the behest of the coup leaders. And she is willing to destroy Ren's habitat and do anything. And so she's been transformed from someone who is respectful of nature to someone who's willing to destroy it. And that, to me, seems part of the story, too. It's like, what makes someone do that? And I suppose, to be specific, what drives Lieutenant Harker, who was essentially raised in harmony with nature, to come to not give a damn about it later? What does that tell us about what drives people in general to be so destructive? Well, Lieutenant Harker is a very powerful survivor of some pretty horrible things that happened to her as a child. And she did experience this harmonious experience with nature when she was younger. But she also experienced some quite shocking things. And part of her journey throughout the novel is an exploration of the lessons we internalize 
and the things we take on without being explicitly taught them or told them. So she's learned quite a wonderful way of living with nature from her aunt and her community, but also she learns subconsciously how to survive and how to adapt through some of the less pleasant people who come into her life, such as her experience within the military. So by the time she has come to the mountain as an adult, being ordered to search for the rain heron, those aspects of her personality and nature have come to the fore and have dominated her previous experiences because that's what's been required of her to live. And that's that's who she is at that moment. And she's also a character who is, it's not that clear early on, but it becomes clearer later that she's one of those people who self-justifies all the time and that she is thinking, well, I'm doing the best job I could here. If someone else came, they'd be worse, which is what a lot of human history recently has been about is, oh, we've done this kind of bad thing, but it would have been way better if we've been way better than someone else who would have been much worse. And she's kind of functions in that role. And so she's doing terrible things to the environment. She's doing terrible things to people, but in her mind, she's the lesser of two evils. And it's only until later on that she kind of has this realisation that, that even as the lesser of two evils, she's causing harm. And so that's essentially what part of her character is. And also it's a lot of the book is about, it's quite unavoidably about violence and how the violence we inflict upon each other bleeds over into the violence we inflict upon the natural world. Violence just begets more violence in, in, in many surprising and unpredictable forms. And so as there's so much violence that occurs in her life, she then becomes a perpetrator of violence. And that's essentially what happens to her. And it's a little bit sad, to be honest, but um, it's, it's not all doom and gloom. Daniel is another character who, when you speak of violence, it is in some ways surprising that he also participates in violence. He's part of the group under Lieutenant Harker, but he's a medic, and he really is presented initially as a different sort, you know, who seems more understanding of Wren and a little more gentle, but he participates in all the horrible things that happen to Wren the salting of her garden, and he even ends up hitting Wren. So he has this tender side, which you were very careful to portray, and he's very loving and nurturing to Lieutenant Harker when she's injured, and yet he's also capable of violence. It's a very complex portrait, and it made me think how all people, of course, are that way, but in real life, we don't see each other that way. We, we tend to just see each other as one way or the other, and we don't say, oh, that person who did that horrible thing also has another side. I mean, we see it in stories, but it's hard to translate that into real life. So now I'm wondering, do I have a question? So my question would be, I suppose, why is it so hard to translate these lessons of literature into real life? I mean, it's a very real portrait. Daniel, Lieutenant Harker, they're all very real people who do cruel things. But, you know, when you read their life story and see into their minds, you see they also have compassion and they are, you know, redeemable as well. But that's so hard to do in real life. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the characters that are portrayed in, in literature, but also in, in popular fiction or in mainstream, any form of entertainment, people are much less complicated than they are in real life. We all contain multitudes. And um, what I was hoping to capture with Daniel, and I'm, I'm really glad that this came across, was that he's not a fundamentally bad person, but nor is he a fundamentally wonderful person. He's got a lot of empathy and concern for others, 
but all the care he shows other people comes when it doesn't cost him anything. He was happy and natural for him to, to care for people and look out for people and, and, and want to help people. But he also, when, when he's put under pressure and he has to make a decision, he, he, in almost every situation, makes the easy one where it doesn't cost him anything other than his own squeamishness. So he does inflict pain and he does commit violence because to not do so in those situations would be an act of bravery he is not willing to, to partake in. And when, when I say that, I'm not being really, really critical of him as a character. I don't hugely dislike him or anything. I think most people would behave like that. You look at the history of all the horrible human conflicts and dictators and dictatorships and all these statistics of millions of people being killed, a lot of people doing the killing, a lot of people doing all those horrible things were probably a lot like Daniel, probably really nice to their mothers, were probably really good parents and were probably really good people when it didn't cost them anything. And so I did want to create this character of Daniel who's necessarily the, the shining light of morality within the soldier unit, nor is he a weakling. He's just interested in self-preservation while also telling himself that he's probably still a good person. And we were talking about people being complicated poor. That's complicated. And, and I, I wanted that to come through because there's no easy answer, but it is how people react. There's a lot of talk about mothers. Zoe's mother dies when she's young and she's raised by her aunt. Ren is a mother whose relationship with her son is damaged. And towards the end of the book, we meet Alec. He's someone whose mother has gone off. We're not sure where. In fact, when Zoe comments that Alec talks about his mother a lot, he shoots back. What else is worth talking about if not our mothers? So what's the deal with mothers in The Rain Heron? Well, I'm really surprised because I haven't had any big reviews or comments about any Oedipus com- Oedipal complexes, <laughs> which I'm just re- which I'm just really relieved about because that's not something you can argue against. That's just something you get stuck with. <laughs> but most of these three characters, particularly not so much Ren, but um, Harker and Daniel and and Alec, are really quite young. They're in they're in their twenties, probably late twenties. So they're still in that stage where they exist in relationship to their parents which for what many young adults do for a long time. However, these people have no contact with their parents and some of the parents, if they are alive, they don't know where they are. So there's this huge gap in their lives, which nobody can address because of all the conflict that's occurred throughout the country. And yet the gap is still there. So this um, focus on mothers that it crops up quite regularly in the book is, is a way of addressing that these people are somewhat incomplete. And that one of the things violence does from us is, is take things away. Not only does it hurt us, but it robs us of things. It can rob us of our own humanity and our own empathy, but it also rob us of physical things like, like experiences and like parents and family members. So while these characters are somewhat preoccupied with their mothers, it, it comes through from the violence that they've all experienced and in some cases inflicted. And that's the same with Ren, who is a mother and is a bit older. She's experiencing her role as a mother at the moment as a sense of loss, and a sense of unknowing. So that's really where it all circles back to. You're the one who mentioned Oedipus. That means I can ask about <laughs> eyes and vision and blindness. In addition to a lot of talk about mothers, there is a lot of talk about eyes and specifically eyeballs. 
I don't know if I exactly have a question there, but I think it's it's certainly interesting to talk about because even the squid's eye is its primary feature, and it's part of what you described about extracting ink. They drop human blood into its eye, and then the rain heron, well, does pluck out someone's eye, and that person, as in really so many classic tales, including Oedipus Rex, when the hero is blinded, that sets them on the course to their ultimate enlightenment. And that seems to happen in the rain heron as well. So I guess maybe it's the same question as what's the deal with eyes in the rain heron? Oh, this is great. This is like um, um, being on Seinfeld or something. Um, yeah, uh, a lot of it is... Um, I, part of this, this this fixation with eyes in it is I wanted the book to have a really mythic feel, even though only parts of it are told as a, as a fable or fairy tale. Uh, I wanted the whole text to feel, have that kind of mythic grandiosity and filling it with this association of loss of vision and having an eye plucked out or it felt to me gave it that kind of mythicness without being too grandiose. It just felt so sudden and kind of vicious that it, it gave it that feel I was looking for. So that's where it, it really began with that stuff. Um, I, I wanted it to feel quite visceral, and but also ancient. And just this removing of eyes felt like it, it carried that weight for the story. Um, another part of it is simply that that's what a bird will do if it's hungry. It will rip out an eye. It's what fish will do too. Um, it's the softest and easiest part of a body to get at. And it's one of those kind of unpleasant aspects of nature that is just true if you look at it and think about it. And I also wanted that to be present in the book and that this quite savage aspect of nature that doesn't conform to humanity's ideas of what is a pleasant thing to do or what is the right way to go about things. I guess in human systems of chivalry or honour, the way to fight somebody would be to keep your fists closed and not to bite or scratch or kick them in the balls, whereas an animal will go straight for the balls and will go straight for your eyes. So I wanted that to be element in there too, this kind of disassociation from human conduct. And that's, yeah, that's kind of really the two things playing out there. And and to be honest with you, this stuff probably isn't too um, deliberate as well sometimes. I get really caught up in creating the story and, and then there's more eyeballs being ripped out than I thought there was and there's there's more focus on on great glowing orbs of eyes under the water than I kind of intended. But then I'm too in love with it at the end to take them out. Well, the repetition can also work. It's sort of returning to a theme. But you are very good at describing those kinds of graphic bodily things, just as you're very good at describing nature, and you're very good at describing what happens to the empty orb when someone doesn't take their antibiotics, too. So kudos for that. Oh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I have received emails saying why, asking why there's so much pus in the book. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I've put people off it. There's not that much pus. Right. No, no. It's And it's all very, it's all appropriate. It comes just at the right time. Yes, yeah, so there's not that much. I affirm that. So when I emailed you the other day, it took a couple of days for you to reply, which is totally fine. But you said you'd been in the bush, which is not the word we use in the States, but it sounded very romantic to my New Yorker raised in the Midwest of the United States ears, you know, being in the bush. And so I gathered from that and also from the beautiful and elaborate descriptions of nature and the rain here and that you spend a lot of time in nature. I wondered if that was right. Yeah. Um, again, sorry, it took me a while to get back to you. Um, <laughs> no. I was in an area with very, no, very limited internet or phone. I coverage. know. I'm um, really, that was not the point of saying that. It was, I was charmed by the fact <laughs> that you were in the bush. Anyone who's in the bush is forgiven. 
<laughs> oh, good. Um, yeah, I'm really lucky. I, I live in a place that has great access to World Heritage Protected Wilderness all over the island where I live, which is Tasmania. So I've always been surrounded by it. And at the moment, I'm uh, in the valley where my mother's family comes from, which is I've been on many bushwalks this week, which is really great. And there's huge dolerite mountains and big wild coastlines with very, very rough conditions and huge temperate rainforests on the western half of the island too. So it's all quite close and it's all very easy to go get into. And once you do it for a while, it's there's kind of nothing else like it. And I know there's lots of amazing hiking and, and wonderful wildernesses in America as well. And and I guess that's influenced me in a, in a big way. It always comes through in my writing a lot. Uh, there's lots of descriptions of natural places because it's generally where I've been and what I'm interested in. But, yeah, I tried living in a bigger city for a while and I just I just couldn't do it. I got really claustrophobic and I could never see the horizon and it didn't work. So, yeah, I'm just, just really lucky to, to be surrounded by all this nature and it really informs my writing in some ways that is really conscious and some ways it's completely unconscious. I'm so glad to have reached you in Tasmania so that we could uh, talk today. This has been great. So thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Rob. It's been wonderful. I've been talking to Robbie Arnett, author of The Rain Heron, which came out from FSG Originals in February in the U.S. and Canada and from Atlantic Books in the U.K. and from Text Publishing in Australia. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and consider leaving a review or as many stars as you can spare on your favorite podcasting app. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I'm Rob Wolf. I edit the show, which is part of the New Books Network, where Marshall Poe is the editor king and Leanne Wilson is the co-editor royalty. Be well. And if you haven't gotten your shot yet, I hope a vaccine is in your future. And see you in a few weeks with a new episode. <laughs>